Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Take a deep breath. What do you feel? Keep that in mind as you listen to today's podcast on the air we breathe. And stick around after the interview for another installment of This Week in Science History with Katie Love. Recently, I was reminiscing with a friend of mine, reminiscing about how dirty the air was when we were kids, though she had it a lot worse having grown up in L.A. This was in the late 60s, before the Clean Air Act had passed. She remembers not being allowed to run at recess because the air quality was so bad, taking a deep breath literally hurt. Then starting in 1970, the country decided enough is enough and passed a new flood of environmental legislation, including the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and a ban on DDT, an insecticide that was decimating populations of endangered bird species, like the bald eagle. Laws like these showed America's commitment to using the best available scientific information to reduce environmental harm and risks to human health. And we all started breathing a little easier. Thanks to these science-based protections, human and environmental health have improved by leaps and bounds since I was a kid. But what happens when the government stops using scientific evidence to design these protections, or dismantles the protections entirely? In the fall of 2019, the Union of Concerned Scientists released a report that answered these questions. The researchers found that everyone's health is put in danger, but not equally. Marginalized communities are harmed most of all. To unpack these findings, I sat down with Anita Desican, author of the report and research analyst here at UCS. We talked about how she did her research, why the EPA stopped doing its job, and what the consequences have been. But Anita also shares the hopeful stories of communities that are fighting back and explained how scientists and non-scientists can be very powerful partners in these efforts. Anita, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's it's great to uh, to be here with you. So you co-authored a report called Abandoned Science, Broken Promises that looked at an increased environmental threat to marginalized communities under the Trump administration. How did you approach the analysis? The way we approached it was we wanted to do three types of methodologies, the case study methodology on these attacks on science, um, quantitative data analyses, and uh, to find stories from our community partners. Uh, I'll give you an example of one of these data analysis that we did. Um, it was to look, and it's a good way to tie how attacks on science hurt everyone and are disproportionately hurting um, marginalized communities. So there's this chemical called PFAS. It's, um, unfortunately, it's omnipresent right now in the environment. It's in your blood, it's in my blood right now, and the more you have it, the worse your symptoms are. There was a report by the CDC in 2018 that talked about just how dangerous this particular chemical, or I should say a class of chemicals, are. And uh, the Trump administration, they buried the report. Now public outcry caused the report to be eventually published and is just showing how bad this particular chemical is. So our data analysis was to look at whether this chemical has an equity component, whether marginalized communities are more affected by it. 
So we looked at surface water, groundwater contamination, really contaminated sites all across the U.S. and kind of drew a five-mile radius around it. What are the communities living within these five miles of very, very contaminated sites? The communities tend to be, unfortunately, communities of color and low-income communities. We found that 40,000, 40,000 more low-income households are located in this five-mile range, more than you'd expect as compared to the U.S. average. And for people of color, it's 300,000, or I should say just a little under 300,000 more people of color than expected based on the U.S. Census. How should the administration deal with the situation like this? What would the ideal way to, to handle that be? Well, the ideal way is honestly to prioritize science-based decision-making. When policies are not based on science, when policy is unhinged from science, it means that special interests can take precedence, special interests can take that void. Now, scientific evidence is one of the best ways we have to determine ways to set health and safety measures, and it saves people's lives. So um, the fact that our administration is devaluing science on so many levels, devaluing standards that protect us from air pollution, and therefore we can't have policies or have fewer policies that protect us, that controls air pollution. And of course, this is disproportionately affecting marginalized communities. When you say deprioritizing, what exactly does that mean? I mean, The EPA has a mission, and they're supposed to be keeping checks and balances on this. So, like, what specifically happens that they're not doing that job? It occurs in a variety of ways. Uh, Take enforcement, for example. The EPA is required by law to enforce certain environmental laws, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, for instance. Now, we did an analysis to determine whether the EPA is actually doing that under this administration, and the unfortunate answer is no. Um, we looked at criminal polluters. These are people who are breaking the laws in terms of, in terms of these environmental laws. And they, uh, if you compare the Trump administration's ability to go after these criminals, it's decreased by 34 to 47% in Uh, if you compare it to the prior two administrations at the same time point. Science is a tool that we should be using to help people. Science is behind the things like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, and we're not using that science to literally help people from criminals um, that are polluting our air and water and land. So if I work at the EPA, and my job is to do water quality or air quality testing, that's what I come in in the morning to do. How is that not happening? Is it because those people aren't there, that the, that these scientists haven't been hired? It, in some respects, you're right. It's, it is a lack of capacity. Um, we actually have seen that in previous analyses, talking to federal scientists, and they're saying there's not people here to do those jobs. And that's also why enforcement is down as well. I'll, I'll take it in another vein, though, um, At the EPA, there are programs that are specifically designed to to help marginalized communities. Um, I'm gonna highlight the Office of Environmental Justice. They have incredible grants that are given to community activists trying to stop environmental justice issues occurring in their own backyard. And when we did an analysis on this, what we found was that there's a 70 to 79% decrease in the number of grants issued to community groups to literally help themselves. It's not just 
there's a lack of capacity to even do the air testing and to do the water quality testing. It's the fact that even agencies in the EPA that have been designed to help our underserved communities, that that, that is their purpose, even they're getting sidelined and dismantled and they're, they're just getting unable to do their jobs. How did you define underserved communities in the analysis? We looked at communities, uh, three different types of communities, communities of color, low-income communities, and indigenous communities. Communities that have been sidelined, that have been ignored, honestly, since the founding of our nation. You could even argue that the founding of our nation was based on systematic discrimination towards these groups. So we wanted to see if, again, if if uh, when science is, is not is taken out of the policymaking process if there's disproportionate impacts. And and it it angers me so much that that is what is occurring under the Trump administration. It angers me that something that's been going on for 200 plus years of our country's history is, is getting worse and worse day by day. So let's talk for a minute about previous administrations. This isn't new in the Trump administration. So how does this administration compare to others? Um, uh, that's an excellent question because these these concerns aren't new. Environmental justice advocates they know the harms that have been occurring in their communities. I'll, I'll give an example. In Portland, Oregon, uh, there's an area that's been a traditionally black community for almost all of the 20th century, and this community. Uh, has a congregation of industrial facilities nearby, places that undoubtedly pollute the air and the water, and it gets concentrated in the black community. So in the 70s, the community activists said, can you please, please put zoning permits there to prevent industrial facilities uh, setting up shop right next door? And they were absolutely ignored, and the area continues to be polluted. So it's not just the Trump administration that's causing, um, that's the be-all and end-all of these pollution harms. It's been happening for a very, very long time. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, you can help us reach more people by simply sharing the podcast with your friends, coworkers, and social networks. Another way to help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. Another example of the harms that are occurring um, in marginalized communities because of the Trump administration's attacks on science is something like a SNAP. So SNAP is, it was formerly called Food Stamps. And this is a program that has been designed, designed to give low-income individuals the ability to eat food. 
I, I feel like everyone should be wanting this and, and cheering for such an amazing program. And the program, according to the science, has shown its success tenfold, a hundredfold. They, uh, children um, who are under this program are less likely to be born with low birth rates. The people under this program take fewer sick days. They're, it uplifts people out of poverty. Now, the Trump administration instead has put work requirements onto SNAP, which will almost by definition push people off SNAP, according to their own estimate, actually. It's about 750,000 people over a course of three years. So again, this is uh, the administration deciding that to devalue and and ignore and um, marginalized communities, communities that are, it's just literally food um, for low-income individuals. Yeah, another example you found is that the administration isn't allowing data to be collected on certain issues. So this is the most insidious of this. When you don't have data to show the effects that are occurring in marginalized communities, you can't find out that there's even a problem, and you can't manage that problem. You can't make a case for it if you don't have anything Exactly. If there's no data, if there's no research, the issue is not even visible to anyone, to any policymaker. So I'll um, I'll give one example when data collection was not allowed by the administration. And uh, so it occurred in Houston, Texas. Um, If you remember in 2017, Hurricane Harvey hit and caused immense damages to um, the chemical facilities in the area. Huge amounts of hazardous air were spewing very just horrible chemicals into the air. Um, and what we would want to do is find out our, where are the hotspots occurring, how can we protect the communities that are next door, which again are mainly marginalized uh, community members. So um, NASA scientists happened to be watching, um, like literally just kind of turning on their TVs and noticing this is occurring or reading in the newspapers, and they were horrified. And so uh, this particular group of NASA scientists had a, um, had a tool called the DC-8. It's a type of airplane that's considered the world's most sophisticated way to measure air pollution. It's like, it can measure about 400 species of air pollutants. It's it's a, an incredible device. And so they, they talked to their bosses, they got all the approvals they needed, and they said they diverted the plane from an already scheduled um, a mission, and they said, you know what, uh, they told the EPA, they told Texas authorities, we are going to come and help. We are going to provide, uh, again, really incredible data collection that will show where the hotspots are occurring and help protect people. Instead, the the EPA and Texas authorities said, absolutely not. They called a second data analysis, quote unquote, confusing confusing because they already had an analysis that showed it wasn't that much of a problem. But again, more data shouldn't be disparaged or shouldn't be forbidden when it's being offered by scientists who want to do good in the world. And so it, I have to admit that things like that uh, are incredibly scary to, to me as a scientist because when scientists are told, do not do your science, when scientists are forbidden to, to offer their services to literally help people, to save the lives of people, it's a very chilling message. And the impacts are occurring, again, disproportionately on marginalized groups. That means the, the concerns that they're seeing every day, every single day, the people's uh, whose lives they're seeing um, perish. They are not able to get 
the proper scientific data to show that this is occurring due to a pollution source next door. And that, that is chilling. You mentioned in the report that some communities are fighting back and, and having some success. Tell me about some of those communities. So we worked with two community partners for the report, Tejas, which is doing great work in Houston, Texas, and Clean Power Lake County, which is doing great work in Illinois. So I'll I'll take Tejas first. So Tejas has been trying to mobilize and help communities that are living next door to chemical facilities. So, um, and these communities are are mostly low-income individuals and people of color. We actually previously worked with Tejas uh, to show that acute and chronic exposures are occurring in primarily these types of marginalized communities. Now, Tejas has been fighting back against uh, the EPA in a variety of different areas when they try to roll back chemical safety um, protections. So I'll give you, in a recent example, it's called the, the RMP rule, the Risk Management Program rule. And this is one that just says when an emergency happens in a chemical facility, there should be a plan in place. Information about the dangerous chemical stored should be known to or should be available to communities and other members of the public. Um, very, very common sense sort of things. I would want to know that. Exactly, right? And so this rule was delayed by over a year by the the Trump administration for implementation. Tejas has been actively fighting against that delay. And unfortunately, the administration very recently did a partial rollback of this rule. Now communities can't find out what chemicals are literally next door to them in these uh, giant facilities. And there are less chances for analyses when something goes wrong. Uh, There's less uh, requirements for the companies to analyze when things go wrong. So again, there's mobilization, there's continued mobilization, there's strengthening of these these rules. The administration is going to continue to do bad things, but I have a lot of hope in community groups like Tejas that help their community say, hey, there's a bad air pollution day, please go indoors, shelter in space, that talk to our congressional representatives, that talk to our state and local representatives and say, okay, the administration is not on our side, please help us. Clean Power Lake County is also doing work that's in the same vein. Again, this is where my hope is coming in from community groups. The They're fighting the good fight, and I want to support them so much. And so in Lake County, this is an area that's traditionally Spanish-speaking, that has a lot of people of color and and low-income individuals in the area, and there are chemical facilities that are spewing a variety of different gases in the air, and I'll focus in on one, which is ethylene oxide. It's a cancer-causing gas. They've highlighted that there's an inequity going on here. The EPA is is protecting and, and helping Uh, advocates from wealthy and affluent communities battling the same cancer-causing gas, but are less willing to do things for the community that's, well, not in that demographic. So that's that's what uh, Clean Power Lake County is fighting against, um, and they've been doing a great job at it. And so... In, in terms of um, where I find a lot of hope, it's in terms of people fighting and fighting and fighting. So they're fighting and they're making incremental progress and they have to keep fighting. Yeah. Which is sad in some ways that you can't live your life the way other people do, that you have to be fighting all the time. That's that's exactly true. And that's why it's important for all of us to be allies to community groups that are, are doing such good work. Honestly, for everyone on this podcast, you can vote 
And your vote makes a, a huge difference in helping communities. By voting, you elect representatives that care about these issues, that care about environmental justice. Because when we don't have officials that consider scientific integrity, environmental justice, issues like this, then they either won't enact laws or regulations or, or other types of protections for marginalized communities, or they might even actively dismantle the protections already in place. The people you vote for make a difference. And I'll also give a pitch to the scientists that are listening to this podcast here. Um, scientists, you have an incredible position to help marginalized communities by working with them, by partnering with them by doing research in community groups. So the science is an incredible tool for communities to advocate for. If they have a scientific study in front of them that says, the scientists corroborate what I've been telling you for years, the asthma that I'm getting, that my family is getting, that my neighbors are getting, are, according to the science, are associated with the industrial facility next door. That is a very, very powerful thing to tell to their decision makers. And scientists, have the ability to provide that that type of technical training and service that can help communities figure out what are the right data sets to go to, what are the right uh, methodologies to think about, what are the how does science work in terms of looking at uh, associations between an environmental exposure and and a health effect. Scientists can play a role with partnering with community groups and helping them in their advocacy efforts to stop these situations that are occurring, to stop these polluting, horrible situations that are occurring. And I think one thing that you mentioned that I think is really important is um, asking scientists to work with community partners to find out what, what it is that they need that's going to help their community that is a major concern sometimes. If scientists have already figured out all the methodologies, uh, all the ways that they're collecting the data, and then just expect for their community groups to to allow them, it's not it's not a true partnership. It's not it's not equitable. And I think we want science to be more equitable. So to give an example of an equitable relationship, uh, Yvette Ariano from uh, Tejas has told us that uh, there are gas flarings that can occur at odd times of the day, like in uh, wee hours of the morning kind of thing. Um, so if scientists were to go to um, that community and test uh, the air pollution in the area, they might not be recording the air pollution times at let's say three in the morning. So without that knowledge from a community member who can literally tell you how to make your science better, it's something that we should be pursuing. We should be acknowledging that community members have incredible knowledge. And, and when we do science in their area, they need to be not only consulted, but uh, not only consulted and informed, but brought into the process in an equitable manner that helps all of us. Well, Anita, thanks for joining me. Let, let's go. Let's go through your your two things that you said earlier. That people, you can vote. That will really make a difference. Yes, yes. And scientists, you can partner with communities and listen to them and and help with the science that you do. Exactly. There, despite the the current administration's obviously anti-science. Um, policies, there are things that we as, as people, we as, as scientists can do, we can help, we can aid community efforts to prevent, prevent these terrible things. Well, thank you, Anita. Thank you very much. And now it's time for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. 
This week in science history, we're going to two different events, more than 30 years and around 4,000 miles apart. The first was on January 24, 1961, when a B-52 bomber carrying two 24-megaton nuclear bombs broke apart in midair, causing the pilots to eject and the bombs to drop. The force of the breakup caused the arming sequence of the bombs to start. One bomb hit the ground and shattered after its parachute failed. The other bomb's parachute deployed, with only one of the six safety switches preventing a nuclear explosion. That switch was later found to be defective in many bombs and was replaced. The crash took place in a swampy area. A part of one of the bombs, containing uranium, was never recovered. The Air Force now owns an easement for the land where the bombs fell and requires permission for anyone who wants to dig in the area. After the incident, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara stated that, by the slightest margin of chance, literally the failure of two wires to cross, a nuclear explosion was averted. The second event, on January 25, 1995, involved a Russian early warning radar, which detected an unexpected missile launch off the coast of Norway. By a dangerous and unexpected coincidence, the missile's flight characteristics looked similar to that of a U.S. submarine-launched ballistic missile leading radar operators to believe that the missile might detonate a nuclear warhead high in the atmosphere, blinding Russian radars before a larger attack was launched. Russian nuclear forces went on full alert, awaiting the order from President Boris Yeltsin to launch a retaliatory strike. Russian early warning satellites did not see any additional launches from U.S. missile silos, leading Russian leaders to decide it was a false alarm. The detected missile was actually the launch of a U.S.-Norwegian scientific rocket on a mission to study the Aurora Borealis, or Northern Lights. Norway had notified Russia in advance of the launch, but their notification didn't contain enough information to raise concerns, and the innocuous science experiment escalated into a high-risk nuclear incident. These two events help show that human error is rife, even with something as world-altering as nuclear weapons. So you would think our policymakers would want to do everything they can to ensure our safety with sensible nuclear weapons policy. And yet current policy allows the United States to launch these missiles on warning of an incoming attack, despite a long history of false alarms and close calls, like the ones I've just described. In fact, many of the Cold War's most absurd and dangerous nuclear policies remain unchanged. In the United States, the president can order the launch of nuclear weapons without consulting anyone. And U.S. policy allows it to use nuclear weapons first in a non-nuclear conflict, likely starting a nuclear war. These policies threaten the world in very real ways, and they need to change. Learn how you can help make that change at ucsusa.org slash nuclearweapons. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to research scientist Anita Desikan. This Week in Science History by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Music and additional editing by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jayu Liang. 
Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time. <laughs>